So this is our talk on Spirit of Poverty. So let me just bring up my email here that I sent my talk to myself. Um, I thought maybe we could start with a little prayer, uh, um, Hail Mary, um, not only for the talk, but just also a prayer for our um, brothers and sisters over in Eastern Europe and Ukraine going through a very difficult time right now. So, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord, with thee, blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. So the title of the talk I gave was Pursuing a Spirit of Poverty in Modern Professionalism. Um, and so we kind of start out with uh, you know, when Jesus in the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this was actually the first of the Beatitudes. So one of the first lessons, you know, Christ wants uh, us to think about and orient all the other Beatitudes towards is first the spirit of poverty. And uh, which, you know, ultimately the Beatitudes help us seek the kingdom of heaven, what Christ desired. As Matthew in 6.33 said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all things will be added unto you. So when we live out the Beatitudes, we're seeking the kingdom of God, in particular when we're living poor in spirit, because he promised the kingdom to those who live poor in spirit. But what does that really mean, to live poor in spirit? And the first thing I want to say is poverty in spirit is first about not what you have, but what you don't have, okay? And so we want to go first um, back to uh, Mark 10. And it starts out and it says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to you, him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So, notice Jesus focuses on, not that he has first a lot of possessions, but actually what he lacks. You know, um, and so for the rich young man, Christ noted that his desire to inherit eternal life was limited by his possessions. So, you know, his attachments. It is not that he has possessions. You know, for instance, Christ made friends with Zacchaeus, who had many possessions, and we know that probably Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were well-to-do people, uh, from what we can tell about their life and how many people cared about them, especially when Lazarus died. So, it's the fact that this man's possessions were limiting his ability to inherit eternal life because of his attachments. So, the greatest source of inheriting eternal life is first to recognize that the kingdom of heaven is ours because we are sons and daughters of God. So that idea of divine affiliation, okay? So as Matthew 6, 7, 8 says, uh, And when you pray, do not go on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You know? So our Father, 
in heaven really does care about us, um, you know. And we have to draw on that, that he is the source of all goods, all the possessions we have, you know, our talents, our physical possessions, our spiritual possessions, every good gift comes from God, you know. And so we think about that. For instance, in the Our Father prayer, we say, give us this day our daily bread. You know, give us what we need, Lord, to do our life well, to pursue our vocation today well, so that we can pursue the kingdom. And so that's what we have to think about as far as with our possessions, what they are. And in Matthew, Christ concludes, uh, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or sow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And he continues, And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor and spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So we have to live and act with the knowledge that our heavenly Father hears us and knows our needs and is the source of every good thing we need while protecting us from the evil, the harm we don't need, right? You know, that's the idea of deliver us from all evil, you know, that we also say. So how do we live a better reliance on our, upon God? So the first thing I would say is we have to be obedient to the truth, okay? That's one of the first big steps. So we must trust that our, faith, our Father has commanded us to observe things for our good, okay? Because when we doubt His authority, when we doubt what He's teaching us, you know, that leads to bad outcomes. So think about it as a healthcare provider, you know? There's a certain trust we ask our patients to follow with instructions, even when tough, you know, but we, fall, but we know that this is best for their outcome, right? So Christ, the word of the Father, told the apostles at the Great Commission when he sends them out to, you know, to baptize the world, he said, teach, he asked him, them to teach the followers to deserve all he commanded them. So at times that obedience will lead to struggles and sacrifice, it will lead us to the cross. But like Christ has said in Hebrews 5, uh, uh, of him, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So learning and attempting to live out the moral and theological truths in our lives and seeking forgiveness when we, uh, when we fail, always and immediately, will help us to better live obedience and our reliance on God. Because when we trust in him, we're going to follow him even when it's difficult. Okay? Number two is being active contemplatives, okay? So that idea, do we work with a sense of presence of God around us? So let's turn to St. Joseph, for instance, as our example, right? He's a, you know, um, here we have a man who welcomed the Blessed Mother to the Word incarnate in his home, who taught and worked alongside Christ in his workshop. And we can create this sense of, of uh, presence of God ourselves, if we're, for instance, carrying around a crucifix or a rosary in our pocket, or if we have an image that we have that we can look at at breaks of, uh, you know, our, um, of our Lord or Blessed Mother, for instance, you know, 
or we have set times where we do prayers, you know, maybe you're on the way your travels, you say the rosary or something while you're sitting there if you have time, instead of looking at, say, your phone and checking out more news or social media stuff, right? Um, maybe we make an extra effort to find a, an extra day we can go to Mass in our schedule, you know, then just Sunday, for instance. Um, um, or turning for, to, like, a guardian for help, uh, guardian angels for help. So one of the tricks I tell people is if you have a difficult thing coming up with a person, talk to their guardian angel first. They know that person best. And a lot of times that guardian angel can help maybe smooth some things over for you when you're trying to work with that difficult person, okay? So that helps us to have that active contemplativeness in our life and, and to have a better uh, reliance upon God when we're always thinking that God's, you know, with us and present with us and he's helping to guide these moments, okay? The next thing I talk about is acts of thanksgiving of God. So I think today the world really struggles with being thankful, right? We're so entitled, we're just expecting to be given things or receive things or everyone to be nice and helpful to us. Um, and whether it's like, you know, the government giving us stuff or in healthcare we're expecting a rapid cure, you know, without side effects, people take today for granted goods that are given to us by our generous Heavenly Father and more often people think about how God has failed them lately than how often God has actually come to their aid. You know, it's, in Ezekiel 18, he says, uh, you know, God responds to the prophet. He says, yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Hear you, O Israelites. Is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? You know, so we can show acts of thanksgiving uh, to uh, the, our Father in many ways, you know, offering our crosses that we experience, our difficulties throughout the day, you know, difficulty crossing the street in the morning, right? That's not easy, for instance. Um, little extra sacrifices we make for other people um, to make their life more convenient. Maybe we do some extra work for our fellow med students or someone else or the residents or, you know, our preceptor to kind of help their work, make it easier for them. And we can offer these as little sacrifices throughout the day or extra um, times when we have prayer doing like a spiritual communion because we know the Eucharist itself means Thanksgiving. So when we do an extra spiritual communion throughout the day, which you can do with a very short prayer, you know, you know, I, you know, my Lord, my God, may receive you with the purity, humility, and devotion which your most holy mother received you with the spirit and fervor of saints. We can just say that in a moment. Notice when we have it, giving thanks to God for, um, you know, what's going on. And then uh, little self-denials, things that we're going to be practicing, for instance, during Lent. You know, maybe I'm going to give uh, up music uh, on the car ride or something like that. Or, uh, you know, maybe um, I'm going to, you know, I like getting a certain coffee every week, but today I'll just get regular coffee and save some money or something like that. Little things we can deny ourselves that aren't too extreme. You know, it's not like flogging yourself and going to the desert and not eating for 40 days. But little sacrifices we can make in our own way. Um, and then finally, you know, the spirit of poverty isn't so much about having things, but realizing that less is more, okay? So in the story I'm going to give you, so in Mark 8, uh, Jesus says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and... Um, um, and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world 
egg, um, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So, this idea, you know, that if we're going to follow Christ, we can't have other distractions hold us back. We can't make those our gods or our idols, okay? And so attachments to creation hinder our, our ascent to heaven, okay? So we all suffer, though, from worldly attachments. You know, not you, you say? You know, think about the last week. Did you ever complain or grumble when something didn't go your way or you didn't have access to something that you usually do or, you know, inconvenience or, or that thing? So we all suffer from attachments to, to comforts and human goods, right? You know, um, you know, did Christ ever, though, grumble about not getting what he wanted? No, he did one time. Okay, yeah, you probably don't remember. There was a time he was really hungry and he saw the fig tree off in the distance and he came over and he saw there was no fig, so he got mad and cursed it. And then the fig tree died. Though he was making a point, because even though the, it wasn't in season for figs, the tree had a lot of leaves on it, right? But, so it looked like it was going to have, should have much fruit, right? When the fig tree's growing lots of leaves, it should have a lot of fruit, but it didn't. So it was all kind of, you know, showiness. And so he was using it as an example to say, it looked like it was being fertile and productive, but then when you really examined it, it wasn't. And so he was kind of using it as an example, like, if you're not truly fruitful and you look like you are, uh, then that's worthless. So, but we all have attachments, so to electronics, to social media, to certain foods and comforts, to human respect, to human affection and love, for instance. And so how do we know these are unhealthy attachments? And one thing I like people to think about is when you, we notice we become very impatient or bitter about something when we don't have that thing going our way or we aren't getting what we want. That's to me is a very quick sign that that item is an attachment for us, right? Um, you know, or when we become depressed or fearful when we're denied an expected item or outcome. So, you know, when we get really emotionally in one way or another worked up about certain things, you know, to some degree, and not to say that emotions are bad. I mean, certainly there's important emotions, and Jesus himself showed emotions. But when it gets out of proportion to that thing, uh, then we have an unhealthy attachment to it, you know? You know, but does at the same time, though, with things, does Christ want us to respond like the rich young man, or how St. Francis responded by selling all that he had and donating to the poor, and then wearing rags. In fact, he went home to his father and was naked in front of his father to show he didn't want to have any attachments. And, you know, we got to go back to what Paul t told the Philippians when um, they were concerned over his well-being of how he's doing. And he said, you know what? I know indeed how to live in humble circumstances. I know how to live with abundance. In every circumstance and all things, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of living in abundance and of being in need. I have the strength for everything through him who empowers me. So, you know, we got to see from Paul that it's not that it's the possession, having possessions or the fact that you have a car or you have a phone where there's someone in, like, 
Uganda who has like barely anything to eat and therefore you're not living a spirit of poverty. But we got to know how to rely on the person, Jesus Christ, and not on our things that so much times we do rely on, you know. So whether it's our gifts or talents, you know, our time or our treasures that Christ is asking us to give, that he gives us, we have to orient these towards serving others, you know. So Paul lived in content and peace, knowing that whether he lived as a rich person or as a poor person, he was always empowered by God. And too often possessions and seeking control leads us to rely on our own strength. Much like the parable of the rich tenant, you know, who set up barns to store his wealth only to die that very evening, and it was all of no value, right? So we can inherit eternal life if we do not, uh, can we inherit eternal life if we do not see everything we possess as a gift from God? that we are merely stirred and completely rely on him for our strength. That is why we in part need to atone for sins, because even after saying we are sorry for our sins in the confessional, we still have an unhealthy attachment due to that sin, right? Um, you know, only through obedience and prayer and sacrifice can we detach ourselves. You know, cutting the cord it hurts sometimes, but it's sometimes necessary. You know, and that's why, you know, purgatory is a merciful place because most of us are probably going to go there because we're going to still have those attachments. And if we're relying on anything else besides God, you can't exist in heaven because heaven is basically, I have complete reliance uh, on God. So, you know, that's why even purgatory is necessary so we can have that final detachment of things on earth, right? You know, so how does modern professionalism um, um, be at odds, though, right now with the spirit of poverty, getting back to what happens. You know, in the medical field, there are unfortunately a number of places these days where we can struggle to live out that true spirit of poverty, you know, due to attachment. So one can be is we have a tendency in the medical field to insist that we always know what's right or know what's best, okay? And I see that a lot, all right? So today, whether due to pride or fear of litigation, we never want to appear to be wrong or make a mistake. If something happens, we may quickly pass the blame to other circumstances or people. If a patient suggests a possible diagnosis or concern, we may be quick to dismiss it, seeing that they are simply lay folk and we are the knowledgeable providers who know more than they. Finally, we hate the sense of not knowing the right answer and admitting it openly. You know, when was the last time you heard someone said in your medical practice, I'm not sure, let me get back to you on that, right? We're always so quick with trying to give answers. You know, but few times are we quick to say, I'm not sure. Or the drive to appear the best, right? So whether it's the joys of showing off a 10-page CV or lists of publications and grants and speaker engagements or liking to use ourselves as examples uh, to other people or showing off our skills or whatever it is or desire to have esteem and respect of our colleagues can drive that unhealthy attachment to human respect and praises. Um, you know, other times maybe we like to interject and put our opinion when our opinion wasn't asked for or necessary, right? And we like to hear ourselves talk and, you know, and, and, and show off how good we are, right? And so that happens so often in our just day-to-day -day inter interactions with colleagues or with patients, right? Um, the other thing is big medicine. You know, with large healthcare corporations driving medicine these days, the models of healthcare are increasingly driving us more about profit, you know, uh, and, and add unnecessary work or pressure of meeting certain quotas to drive billing that's maybe even unfair, right? And when 
and, you know, when uh, how we are doing is rated upon RVUs or net profits or uh, of our work or, quote, patient ratings, you know, the true essence of medicine is lost, you know, that we're there to accompany someone on their path of life and maybe even to a final path of death, potentially, okay? Um, and then four, I'd say restlessness over suffering, right? Medicine today doesn't know how to deal with suffering, okay? So today we talk about quality of life as, in, as a measure of success, not life itself, right? Interests of people and being, and being able to obtain them is what is valued, not the person themselves. Hence, when a doctor cannot make something better, we feel powerless and not being able to live up to the demands of the profession, okay? So hence, we have replaced a physician-patient relationship with merely a business model that distances us from empathetic accompaniment of our patients. We've welcomed physician-assisted suicide because it puts us back in power, right? Now I can control this situation. I can offer you something to completely end it, right? And we hate to see the frailty of our human existence or our inabilities to fix problems, right? So death becomes the treatment when love becomes inconvenient, okay? And in many ways we're saying, let me put you out of my misery, right? Like, yeah, I don't want to have to see your suffering because it makes me suffer, okay? But the quality of life is not a physical diagnosis, but it's the state of mind. And we as healthcare providers have an apostolate, you know, a duty to remind everyone that life itself, especially in that final hours, is one of the most sacred and powerful times we ever live. Not the weakest or most shameful, okay? Right? Jesus talks about that final hour when he comes into his glory, which is him dying on the cross. And when you're dying on the cross, you're basically suffocating to death and your lungs are filling up with fluid and you're weakened and can't take any more breaths. But he said that was the moment of his glory, right? If we unite our own sufferings, in particular our last hour, how much power could that have at bringing grace into the world? Yet today's society wants to say that's your worst, weakest time, right? You know? So I want to give a story about a physician saint who lived out the spirit of poverty well. In fact, he was known as the physician of the poor. St. Giuseppe Mascotti, so 20th century physician living in Italy who dedicated his life to serving the poor. And one day when he came to treat a poor railway worker, um, he was there. His friends who worked with him were trying to uh, gather in a corner to try to come up with the money to pay uh, Dr. Mascotti's typical wage. And upon overhearing their plan, the saint walked over and said, since you, by taking some of your hard-earned money, have come to the aid of your sick friend. I will join your humanitarian effort and make a contribution to this fund drive so that the sick man can have, with some, the sum collected, the necessary means of treating his illness. And then he had them over three 10 lira bills, which was basically the equivalent of three times the cost of his service. Right? So here's a man who was completely detached from what he was making, and more was sitting there to serve the people. So, you know, Lent is coming in the next week, and so this is a great time to kind of take an inventory of our sins and our attachments, to kind of look over ourselves, you know, and see um, what we could do better, you know, um, and think about it. Our Lady at Fatima didn't tell the three children that the greatest attachment leading souls to hell was the love of chocolate or candy, okay? You know, I don't know if you know what she told the, the children at Fatima what was the greatest sin. Sins of the flesh, okay? Um, 
So it, it's not chocolate or candy. Like, everyone wants to give up chocolate or candy for it, okay? Like, it's not like darn you Hershey's or Reese's Pieces or Willy Wonka's Everlasting Gobstopper. You know, I was a saint until you made me a sinner, right? So let's get practical about, like, what what is an area I really need to let go of and, and, and do better? It might not be a bad thing. Maybe I look at my phone too much. And I need to set certain times where I say I can look at my phone at this time, but I need to be off of it. You know, maybe it's at the dinner table with, you know, family or friends. Like, I shouldn't be looking at my phone at that time or, or those types of things or, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, attachments to the, to the meantime. Like, I just need time alone, right? Maybe we need to go call a friend instead that day instead of just wanting to sit in our house and we reach out to people. So finding some practical ways to really work on things that we need to work on. Um, and then I want to just give you a final lesson from a Roman emperor to teach you about what attachment can do. So history recounts that in the 7th century, the emperor Hercules went to war against the Persians to recover the cross of Jesus, which they had stolen from Jerusalem and kept in a palace near Baghdad. After 15 years of fighting in, 16, in 630, the Byzantine army recovered the sacred wood, and the emperor led his troops in triumph to the holy city. Hercules wanted to carry the cross himself as he entered Jerusalem. But when he took hold of the wood while mounted on his horse, he became extremely heavy. It became extremely heavy. So he dismounted it, his horse, and tried to carry it on foot. But it was impossible to move. So he began freeing himself of all that was weighing him down. His crown, his royal mantle, his breastplate, his sword, and shield. And finally, wearing only his tunic, he was able to lift the wood. So stripped of all his imperial riches, the emperor finally resembled Christ, who six centuries before carried the cross through the same streets. Yeah. So, do you desire the poverty, the poverty of spirit? Then demand less than you deserve, knowing it is the little that God can turn into something great, right? God works with little things. He doesn't work with big sums of money, all right? So, think about it. When did Jesus ever ask the apostles, you know, to, you know, for food or something, and they had tons of it or tons of money? Never. He always, like, hit them up when they had little or nothing, right? Remember when he hit them up and... Uh, He's like, oh, feed all these people. Like, oh, not even six months' wages can feel these people. We don't have that. We have just like this boy here has five loaves and two fishes, right? You know? Right? So, but look what he turned that in. He fed 5,000 with that. I mean, even greater still, what's more magnificent, he takes a small wafer that's finite and turns that into the infinite, his infinite self in the Eucharist. You know? So worldly attachments cannot satisfy. You know, as this Latin epitaph, Anna um, stated, it says, In nihil ab nihilo quam situ which means, how quickly we fall back from nothing to nothing. So, so much we surround our lives with the nothingness of riches and how quickly we fall into more nothingness, right? So, God wants to satisfy all of us in and through our poverty, not our plenty. Okay? All right. So, that's the talk.